Hello and welcome to the Intrafish podcast where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. We're going to take a look at a couple stories this week because we've only got a little bit of time. Uh, let's start off with uh, what we ran on Friday, which is quite interesting. We uh, had a commentary submitted to us by Christy Walton. Christy Walton, as you might recognize by the last name, uh, is a uh, heiress, I guess you could say, or a, a member by marriage uh, into the Walton family of uh, Walmart fame. And Christy is, uh, among many other things, a multi-billionaire, uh, the ninth richest uh, woman in the United States, I believe. Um, but what most people may not know about her is that she's also an investor in aquaculture and in uh, sustainable uh, aquaculture technology uh, via her investment group, Cuna Del Mar, which is a holding company for uh, a, a group of, of uh, aquaculture production and uh, genetics uh, and technology, uh, technology companies. So, Christy had a few things to say. If you'll remember, we discussed a couple of weeks back uh, the Seafood Watch program run by the Monterey Bay Aquarium and its sort of strange sway that it has over the consumer market in the U.S. Um, the Seafood Watch program recently rated uh, American caught Atlantic lobster as an avoid, as a, a red as part of their traffic light. And it got a lot of people really unhappy about how they arrived at these conclusions and arrived at uh, their rating. Um, a lot of pushback from legislators, from obviously from the industry itself, uh, from researchers. And so it, it really sparked a lot of interesting conversations. Um, now, John, what I found most interesting, though, about uh, what uh, Christy Walton said in her commentary wasn't necessarily what she said about Seafood Watch, uh, although she had complaints about Seafood Watch and the way that uh, it oversimplified uh, how, uh, how it presented uh, seafood uh, and how it presented um, uh, to consumers which fish should and shouldn't be consumed. But I found the, the way that she advocated for sustainable, sustainable aquaculture production quite interesting. And we were talking just before the show that it frames it in such a way that um, aquaculture, I mean, one great line she said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but essentially farm fish can't go extinct. And I think we're at this interesting inflection point where... I don't think we would have been able to say this a few years ago, but where it seems like farm fish is at this tipping point of being even considered more sustainable than wild caught fish. I don't know that we're there yet, um, but it's an interesting topic of discussion. But John, first, what were your thoughts on, on Christy Walton's commentary? Um, what it means in the larger uh, sense of the NGO community and, and what it means for um, kind of sustainable aquaculture and how it's perceived. Yeah, um, well, right off the bat, you know, um, my takeaway was her 
her contention that Seafood uh, uh, Watch is, is basically out of step with modern the modern seafood industry in the sense of it isn't really understanding new technologies and new species and things like that. She she pointed out that one of Kuna Del Mar's um, uh, portfolio companies, uh, Open Blue, raises cobia in Panama, and that initially was red listed by by uh, Seafood Watch because, in her opinion, they really didn't understand the technology and what was going on, and they just kind of did a um, you know out of hand uh, red listing because of the feed conversion uh, ratio that they measured by. So that you know that's a big part of what she talked about. But more importantly, I think the point that you just made is we now seem to have some some pretty serious infighting in the NGO community, which, you know, is not new. Uh, we've seen it over the last two, two and a half decades with the emergence of the MSC and, you know, uh, NGOs not approving of their approach, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not new, but... The, the heavyweight nature of this is interesting because Monterey Bay is the Packard Foundation, Julie Packard. And on this on the on the other side right now, we have Christy Walton and the the Walton powerhouse. So, um, you know, if this if I can make the analogy, if this is a boxing match, this is a heavyweight um, championship kind of. Uh, level um, uh, spat going on or, you know, argument going on here. So it's it's a big deal in that sense. But I took away much the same thing you did. Her last line of the column is no farm species has ever gone extinct. And I think if you let yourself launch off from that point and think this through, it does it does, as you mentioned, kind of uh, bring about a new era of how we look at sustainable uh, seafood harvesting because we know the wild fisheries are um, they're getting impacted by climate change. Fish are moving out of their normal ranges. Their uh, predators are moving out of normal ranges. Things that we took for granted for so very long as far as this fish or this shellfish will be here, we'll harvest this one. It's, it's changing. It's changing rapidly. And that's not to say that climate change isn't affecting uh, us uh, farming, aquaculture, because we know that is happening as well. But it looks like if I, if I can read between uh, the lines in Christie's um, column, it looks like she's basically saying we can control aquaculture uh, as far as um, climate change is concerned to a large degree. We can't control wild fish and what may happen there because of um, climate change. So a lot of interesting points, a lot of points uh, in there. You should really read it if you haven't because it's a lot of good thinking in there about where we are and what's happening Um you know, with aquaculture and wild fish and climate and 
all those things uh, that we lump together in the blue economy. Yeah, and I mean, why does this matter? You know, like you said, John, you've got uh, when the, the Walton family has been very involved in uh, ocean and fisheries and aquaculture issues for a long time via the Walton Foundation. Uh, Lucas Walton uh, has S2G Ventures, his uh, private investment arm. Um, and, uh, and of course the, the, uh, the Walton foundation in general has been financing a lot of projects around the, the world related to sustainable fishing and aquaculture. So, you know, when a group, a philanthropic group or high net worth family decides that something is important, um, let's not be naive and think that that doesn't have a impact on the agenda for the NGOs that they support. It very, very much does. And uh, Julie Packard and the Packard Foundation also uh, has been a, a huge supporter of sustainable fisheries and aquaculture and ocean conservation projects. So what is kind of interesting to me is is I think I think that Christie's onto something there that there is an older way of how sustainability has been pictured that, I think you and I have seen over the past couple of decades, John, where um, it has been um, aquaculture is bad, uh, you know, wild fish is good, or um, at least, um, you know, the sustainable uh, wild fishing um, is good if it has certification. Uh, conservation is good, um, and it's it's there's been some groups that have been kind of stuck in that mentality of, uh, of thinking that, you know, sustainably certified wild fish are going to be the absolute best, uh, choice for, uh, for making for a more sustainable ocean that you can actually harvest and, and, uh, you know, actually use for food production. But I believe that we've seen, quite a pivot. And I think it's happened very recently. I would say in the last, I would say three to five years that a lot of groups, um, that have maybe before been very critical of aquaculture, you see them start to see it as a, a potential way, not only for, uh, for conservation, um, but for uh, food security. And I think there's there's finally this awareness of, you know, wait a minute, we're going to need all this food. How are we going to do it? Um, and we're not going to be making any more wild fish. Like you just noted, John, there's no, you know, there's no way for humans to, to um, influence wild stocks in terms of making them more productive. Um, so, uh, so I think that there, there's a shift now among, uh, several NGOs and several, uh, conservation groups that, okay, aquaculture seems to be the answer if we can do it sustainably. And I think it's, it, there's a realization of, wait a minute, I guess it, it is being done sustainably in a lot of places. I guess there is the technology to, to do this sustainably. And in a way, you know, I think there is kind of a waking up of some of these groups that I think have traditionally sort of rested on some 
some given truths that uh, about aquaculture, um, some fallacies about aquaculture. And I think there's a recognition now that um, this is going to be really critical to uh, food securities and and you know saving the oceans ultimately. And as you said, John, with climate change, you know we can't just sort of wait and see what's going to happen with wild fisheries. If indeed we feel like seafood is an important part, an important piece in the in the global protein pie, we can't really wait and just say, well, let's see what happens with these fish because we know what happens with these fish. We've seen in Bristol Bay, Alaska, home of the world's largest wild salmon run, fish getting smaller and smaller. So there's that issue. We've seen in the North Atlantic, uh, we've seen fish stocks moving further north than they used to. We've seen off the coast of Peru, the anchoveta fishery, the most important uh, and largest single biomass of fish in the world. They're behaving in different ways as well. So... This is only going to happen more and more, and I think there's only so much that uh, that that uh, that the seafood industry can can do to go and um, change their practices to harvest these fish. So, um, so it, it's it's going to be essential that that people do start making this this mental shift towards uh, where aquaculture where aquaculture sits on the uh, on the spectrum. Yeah, you know, Christy talks a lot about technology in in her um, commentary, and it got me thinking about, you know, as as a species, as we try to deal with climate change, and it has begun, as we all know, and it, it appears in some cases it could be accelerating. I don't know, but I think if you ask people there's the urgency to deal with this has never been greater. And when we approach that and how we're going to deal with it, it always seems to go back to some technology, some technological solution to help us, you know, um, uh, help us construct uh, buildings and stuff that can resist climate change, uh, fuel that isn't harming the environment, et cetera, et cetera. We, on the technology side, when it comes to seafood, when it comes to wild fisheries, we can apply technology to catch more fish, to catch them quicker, and to more fully utilize them. We cannot apply a technology to grow more wild fish necessarily to the degree we would have to. Yes, there are hatcheries, but that's a very limited use of technology to raise the abundance of wild fish. However, on the aquaculture side, you know, theoretically, we can use technology to someday raise as much fish as we want. So this whole point around technology is interesting and it intersects with the point you made earlier about these foundations, Walton, Packard, and where their money's going. And when you look at seafood, so much of the investment these days is going into the technology behind aquaculture, not necessarily going to the aquaculture companies to help them run better or whatever. Yes, there's there's that. But it's going into the technology to um, 
sure, increase production, but maybe uh, land-based production, you know, money going there, uh, technology to be able to better feed the fish uh, or shrimp or whatever it may be. So the technology part is really interesting, and I think that's kind of the fulcrum for um, this discussion as it moves forward. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. That um, and that's all that money is also coming from um, private investors. You know, all this investment that's come in these blue economy investments. Um, I mentioned the Walton uh, Lucas Walton's um, fund earlier. Um, but it, it's it's many many high net worth individuals, many many uh, uh, private equity, venture capital, um, uh, impact investors are now putting money into aquaculture in part because it's investable, and it's very very difficult to invest in wild fisheries. It's very cyclical, um, and I think investors like investors they like certainty in, insofar as they can get it. They don't like uh, they they don't like um, something that can be so so seasonal can be here one one year and then not here the next year, that doesn't really uh, make sense for a typical investor. You really need to be a fishing company that's geared for those ups and downs so that, so that you can understand and, and, plan, uh, and plan for it. Um, but I think in general, you're not going to see big investments going into fisheries from outside um, you know, I think when fishing companies can be incredibly profitable and when they are, they, uh, at times will invest that into their, uh, equipment, making vessels, uh, as you said, John, more, more efficient, able to utilize more of the fish. Um, and, and there is technology being developed in the fishing sector, uh, for example, in Norway, that's pretty promising and pretty exciting about reducing fuel use, um, and and some other uh, some other tech that can um, can make it all more efficient and reduce uh, less emissions. All that said, there is really only one way that you can uh, be sure, or relatively sure, of the amount of fish that you're going to produce, and that's through aquaculture. That's the only way. And as you said, it's the tech side that's getting all the money because there is the realization of wait a minute. This can be done uh, not just more sustainably, but more efficiently. And, and I think, too, that investors are starting to note that, wait a minute, um, yes, we want to invest in sustainability. But I think they're realizing, too, that efficiency is a really, really important part of sustainability that's easy to overlook um, because it can be unexciting. But when you use an entire fish, every little bit of it, including the guts and slurry that comes off the processing line, when you can use all that, and there's lots of technologies now being developed that can do that, that is about as sustainable as you can get uh, using the whole fish. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, interesting development that we're, that we're seeing uh, on the investment side. And, and I think Walton was, um, it was just another sign that somebody that has a lot of power, a lot of sway that people listen to, um, has been so public and reached out to us. Um, because, uh, you know, clearly she really wanted this message, um, uh, to get out there, 
which is, um, yeah, that really says something about where I think uh, many NGOs um, are, where their minds are and where their thinking is. Well, and well, we got to go back to the lobster uh, red listing that happened a couple of weeks ago because that really seemed to galvanize all this, mm, I guess, angst or all this dissatisfaction with the Seafood Watch program that has has been out there for a long time. I mean, when they came on the scene in like 1999 or something like that with a very simplistic uh, you know, uh, red, yellow, green system to identify fisheries as, as far as sustainability. It caught on. It caught on with the people they wanted it to catch on. Chefs, consumers, retailers, restaurant owners. And it's hung around in that same version for a very long time. Now, they'll tell you that, you know, it's been it's been modernized and updated and all that. I, uh, you know, I think there's debate about that. But when the lobster got listed, I think a lot of the pent up frustration with the system has it started to come to a head. And this is this is part of that. So um, I don't know what that means for Seafood Watch down the road. The, you know, they dug their heels in on shrimp and uh, Julie Packard came out and said, you know, heck no, we're not changing our minds. And, and that's fine. I mean, they obviously can't bow to every, um, you know, every opposition. But um, it'd be interesting to see over the long run what, how much this impacts, if at all, the, you know, the integrity of that program in, in people's eyes. Well, I think it, it's what I think is kind of happening with the NGO community in terms of how. Uh, they're working on seafood issues is it seems like there's been a real move away from uh, from gut to data and what I mean by that is that it used to be that really the people driving the bus on awareness of sustainability in seafood uh, were groups like Greenpeace that were able to um, kind of gather a lot of media attention by hanging banners or, um, you know, protesting in front of retail stores. Um, and, and groups like Seafood Watch that were able to rank and kind of simplify seafood to say, this is bad, this is good. But now there is so much data and so much science and so much technology that it's just very, it's become kind of anachronistic to think that, um, you can just kind of say, well, this isn't good because of, you know, these one or two things that we think might be getting impacted. So we're going to lump them all together. Um, or just that general feeling that aquaculture is bad. Um, I just think there's, there's more awareness in the NGO community that, wait a minute, if we want to have an, an impact, then we need to have influence by being involved in the, uh, in the actual private sector or investment sector uh, in some way that we have to recognize there's an economy um, and jobs that are supported by these industries. So we have to tread in a different way. Um, and then, yeah, also recognizing that there's lots and lots and lots of data now that we can figure out 
how to make uh, how to make these um, these uh, farming methodologies more sustainable, make them more efficient. Um, and I think ultimately it's um, it's going to to make a huge a huge difference. All that capital coming in. Um, and so, yeah, I think Walton's probably right that we're at a turning point. I don't know to what extent we are in the U.S. because there's still, again, I think if you look at um, some of the efforts to get offshore aquaculture developed, which is part of what um, Cuna Del Mar, the Walton uh, company, uh, is really focusing on, is pushing to get offshore aquaculture um, developed to get a framework for that. That's moved very, very slow still. And again, a lot of it has to do with wild fish interests, um, whether it's commercial or uh, recreational. But it just kind of shows there's still this kind of uneasy uh, feeling between um, between uh, aquaculture and fisheries still in some camps. But I think as you shed a little bit of light on the aquaculture sector, think people are beginning to see, wait a minute, you know, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought up the offshore aquaculture, because I was thinking the other day, uh, you know, I, I love wild-caught uh, U.S. Gulf of Mexico shrimp. You know, there's a whole industry down there, and they're very pride, they have a lot of pride, and they struggle generally every year. Uh, the the resource fluctuates just like it, you know any wild resource would. Prices uh, are never as high as they would like them to be. They this has led to them you know having these big trade battles with imported uh, shrimp suppliers from Asia and elsewhere. So, given that backdrop, what if that industry was based on aquaculture down in the American South and Texas and other places where there frankly is lots of land and lots of opportunity or off off the shore of these places where um, you know there's there's opportunity as well. How different would that be? Um, what you know how from a supply point of view for say US buyers, if there was a bona fide you know scaled, uh, shrimp, uh, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> shrimp farming sector in in this country, it would be dramatic. It would it would be it really would be great. Now, I, I'm not saying on the other side of that equation that we don't need wild Gulf Gulf shrimp because that's that's a wonderful product and probably some of the best shrimp you'll you'll ever have. But that sector isn't growing and we don't know what's going to happen there with climate change and the the members of that industry the fishermen the process you know they work hard i mean they, they they give it their all these are generations of fishermen and processors and um you know they they struggle and they get bailed out a lot with, uh, you know, emergency relief from the government and stuff. And, and that that's fine and all, but you have to sit there and think, well, could all that energy or at least a good portion of that energy go into building, you know, a uh, shrimp farming uh, sector down in that same region, employ probably a lot more people 
and bring stability to those communities that are small communities, bring stability to them. And basically they'd be doing the very similar work to what they've done their whole lives. It's not a popular discussion to have, especially down there, but you you mentioned at the outset of this, are we at some tipping point here where aquaculture is, you know, it's moved to the top. It's the way we're going to produce fish and we're going to rely on it. Um, you know, it's a discussion that the South, uh, I think, should should have. Well, think about it. Um, I remember a few years back, I penned a column on this, but think about fish farming in Alaska, for example. Um, another area, everything you said about the Gulf, you could apply to descriptions of, you know, Alaska fishermen in, in Alaska. And, you know, it's, it's, again, I think the sort of adamant opposition to aquaculture is changing. And I, I think it, it, I hope that wild fish dependent communities, um, around the world can start really rethinking it a, a bit and just kind of just take a second look because I think they're really going to need to, like you said, John, there's going to need to, it's, there's no question that aquaculture is going to be the number one method of seafood production. It already is for, for human consumption, but I mean, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, all forecasts and projections are that aquaculture is just going to continue its growth, provided it can be, uh, there's enough feed to feed all those fish. Um, wild fish will one day could be minuscule, especially as people uh, lose their taste, so to speak, for beef and pork and chicken, which again, the NGOs uh, I think have really focused a lot more attention on those sectors and uh, the harm those sectors are doing to the environment with emissions and the like. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody that's just opposed to fish farming on the basis of it being fish farming, they're probably in for quite a surprise when you start researching and looking at the data. And again, I think it's a technology that's changed so much. And maybe that's really changed people's minds is when they actually maybe go to a farm, maybe they, maybe people finally go to a farm and they change their minds. But when you actually go to one and you see how high tech these things are, um, aquaculture has loads of problems that it needs to solve. Absolutely. But I do think there's an awareness now that you can't just dismiss it out of hand. You have to actually examine and say, okay, wait a minute. What is modern aquaculture, uh, compared to what it was even 15 years ago. Yeah, it does have problems to solve, but you know, it, it, I I would argue these those problems are a lot more. We have a greater ability to solve those problems than we do with wild fisheries because I mean, there's just nothing we can do beneath the sea to <laughs> bring more more fish along or, you know, put them where we want them so we can catch them and things like that. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting time and it 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 does feel like we are, you know, we're turning a page here in a, in a fairly dramatic way. Yeah. And I think it's it's one of those it's a hard time, and I think especially for the wild fish industry to think about these types of, of changes, 
because, you know, chicken and pork and beef, we don't really think about what breeds those are, you know, whether it's, yeah, whatever. I have no idea what the pig breeds are, but there's pig breeds. And, you know, when it comes to the different types of chicken, um, people don't think about that or the cows that are used for meat. It's just not, it's just not thought of. There is beef, there's pork, and there's chicken. And I think as, as part of this, part of, I think what's difficult is, you know, seafood has this diversity, uh, to it of species and this, this, uh, idea of the abundance of the ocean and all the different, uh, you know, the, the different, um, animals that live there and the different foods that, um, that we can eat from the ocean. But the reality is, to actually make aquaculture efficient and to to make it a modern, large um, farming industry, uh, it requires a reduction of the types of species that you grow as well. And I think that's you know that's that's difficult too. That when you look at it, you're you're not going to be growing every single kind of uh, of fish. There'll be niches here and there, but you know I think the the acceptance has to be as people accept aquaculture's production growth, that there's going to be a small number of species too that are going to have to be really focused on intensively if things are to get uh, even more uh, efficient and more sustainable. And of course, those ones are pretty easy to rattle off. Salmon and shrimp are the, the first ones that are, uh, that are definitely going to be the focus. And of course, um, we're going to see uh, whitefish, whether it's in the uh, saltwater ocean whitefish or on the land. So, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting era uh, over the next, you know, probably maybe maybe sooner than we think. But I think over the next five to ten years, we're going to see some significant changes uh, and even more of these shifts in thinking where people really um, maybe in some ways in a resigned way. <laughs> recognize okay you, you can't beat them it's time to it's time to join them let's leave it there folks uh remember you can find us on intrafish.com if you haven't read uh christy walton's opinion piece uh, as john said go take a read it's uh it's really thought-provoking um and of course uh, news coverage of everything else that is happening in seafood which uh, is a lot. So uh, head over there. You can sign up for our newsletters. You can download our app, which is uh, on the Apple Store as well as on Google Play. And that's the best way to keep up with us because uh, number one, the app's really slick, really easy to use. But also you can sign up for alerts and uh, and ensure that you can uh, catch news on any of your favorite topics. So, uh, so do that. All right, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.